There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery. Code Wondery. Greetings, all you huggable fiends out there. It's an artist podcast, episode number 270. I am going to be telling stand-up comedy jokes soon in cities like Nashville, Chicago, Indiana. That's not a city. <laughs> but Bloomington is. Uh, I went to an American school. But I'm going to be doing stand-up on the road, so check Nerdist.com slash calendar for dates and information on that. Also, the Nerdist channel, YouTube.com slash Nerdist, has some great new shows premiering soon. Neil Patrick Harris is Dreaming in Puppets, Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, Star Talk. So, a lot of good Neil action happening over at the Nerdist channel. That sounded weird. Might I extend an extra huge thanks to the sponsor of the Nerdist podcast, it's Stamps.com. Some people say, hey, well, I'll just get a postage meter, and then I'll just uh, print out my postage that way. Well, you are the wizard of wrong, because with the postage meter, you have hidden fees, there's meter ink charges, there's reset fees. With Stamps.com, there's none of that stuff, no long-term contracts, no extra hardware to buy. You're going to save 80% as compared to a postage meter. Plus, you can also do things like user existing address books. You can send tracking information to recipients with the click of a button. So, guys, the choice is clear. You have to use Stamps.com, and particularly if you want to run a small business, or if you like convenience, or if you want to look cool to your family members, your parents, and and your grandmas will be like, how did you get the exact postage printed onto the envelope? And then you'll be like, I'm related to Catherine Hepburn. So use stamps.com. If you go to stamps.com right now, you can use the promo code NERDIS for a special offer. No risk trial, $110 bonus offer, and a digital scale, up to $55 of free postage as well. Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Nerdist. That's Stamps.com, and enter Nerdist. And now this episode. Uh, it was Larry King, and it was such a fantastic chat. Uh, it was really cool because I thought I was only going to get like 30 minutes with him. He was like, well, I only have 30 minutes. And then we started talking, and we really got into the conversation. And, you know, his producer came in, and he was like, Larry, it's 30 minutes. He was like, no, 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 I'll keep talking. And so in a weird sort of way, I, I, <laughs> I almost felt like interview victory i got him to extend his time and uh so that was that was a weird little uh achievement unlocked merit badge that popped up on my uh, mental xbox screen i mean this guy has just been on the forefront of media for decades uh, and i had no idea really how far it went back and and the and the, the circles that he was involved in i mean i knew they would be awesome but i as you find in the podcast um they were very relevant to my interests and uh, he is i've never been interviewed by someone who i mean he really is kind of a puppet master when he interviews you because you he you jump all over the place and then all of a sudden you're just opening up about stuff um, i had done his show about a month ago uh, which is on hulu.com which you should check out it's called larry king now they put up new episodes monday through thursday uh and i did his show and it was so much fun i was like oh larry you gotta do my podcast and then he was like chris 
Garrett, stop shaking me. Uh, and I let him go, and he agreed to do the podcast. So uh, here it is, the Nerdist Podcast, episode number 270 with Larry King. Hello, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? I don't have call-in capabilities. Now entering Nerdist.com. We on? We are. Okay, that's the way we just we just. There's, this isn't like television. There's no official start to this. It's so just... Ang, why are we so time conscious? Then thirty minutes, forty minutes, forty five minutes. If we just angle in, why can't we just angle in and angle out? Well, because in because uh, in about three hundred episodes, there's sort of an average. Uh, well, so you could have two guests. Right? There's a, we've actually never had two like no. like stack guests on top of each other. Actually, it's not a bad idea. I used to do it all the time. I know. You've There's already no, improved the podcast. The one thing I've learned in the history of broadcasting, podcasts or whatever, is there are no rules. Yeah. Why can't it be four guests? Yeah. Is that... It? But, but it's interesting to hear you say that because you've worked in so many different mediums where, you know, radio is very structured and television is very structured. Yeah, but what I did, the Larry King show on radio, some nights we'd have one guest, some nights three, some nights four... Some nights we'd have debates, some nights we'd have... In other words, there, there are no real rules. The only rule I had, which you, you don't have here, is we had a starting time. Mm-hmm. I had to go on, which I had on television, a certain yeah. time that I went on. Right. And a certain time you went off, and you had a break for commercials. Right. But inside the content, it could be anything. And no F-bombs. Never cursed. <laughs> you can't. But and especially now, do you feel you cursed like, on podcasts? Oh yeah, all the time. I'm, I see. It's still that's something about. While I will re, in real life curse, I'll go to a Dodger game and get mad at the ump. <laughs> but however, it still rubs me wrong in broadcasting. It's probably from the school of broadcasting I came from, which is in the. I grew up listening to broadcasting in the '30s and '40s and '50s. It started in the '50s. I broadcast in. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, seven decades, uh, it rubbed me wrong. So I never, it just still rubs me. So when I watch HBO and I'll see a movie and the cursing is on, it still hits me the wrong way. It's just ingrained that way. Yeah. Uh, I I, I think what's happening with podcasting right now could somewhat be analogous to what you were just describing in terms of, you know, broadcasting in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So do you remember what... What, what was the sort of vibe back then, in, you know, like with uh, this radio thing and then all of a sudden this TV thing? Well, I grew up, I, I was born in 33, the Depression years, there was no television. I was a product of radio and radio fascinated me and it was fascinated me from age five on. It's all I ever wanted to do. I was fascinated by voices, still am. I, I, I don't think radio will ever be really replaced. Uh, you can't have television in cars. Drivers got to listen to something. Yeah. And radio is still the theater of the mind. And I was raised uh, in the age of suspense. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Yeah. Inner sanctum, the shadow knows. <laughs> and those were hypnotic, incredible days of sitting up by my radio and listening. And then 
I would listen, I would imitate them. I'd hear an announcer say, you know, Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. That was a, a daily serial. And I'd run into the bathroom and I would say, Jack Armstrong. I, then when I was in my teens, I'd, after school, I'd go into Manhattan. I lived in Brooklyn. And I'd walk by where there was radio stations and pretend I was on the radio there. I'd go right up in the elevator and ride out and pretend I was an announcer. It's all I ever wanted to do. So I was raised in that structure of broadcasting. I wanted to be a professional broadcaster. That's all I ever wanted. When television came, everything that happened to me happened to me. I never sat down and said, my only goal ever was to be a radio announcer. So I never had another goal beyond that. Uh, television came, I've gotten a television. Print, I wrote for the Miami Herald. I wrote daily columns. And then uh, I did national radio show. We did the first national talk show. That just came. Mm -hmm. CNN came to me to do a, whoever thought that I'd be seen, whoever heard of satellites, or that I'd be seen all over the world. So there was nothing planned. It was, but I, but I was always a professional broadcaster. I loved, I loved the profession. I love everything about communicating. I think it's a great way to make a living. I think it beats work. I never, I never said I went to work. I never used the last time I worked was when I was 22 years old on a United Parcel truck. I was the assistant driver and would help carry packages into buildings. And then I went down to Miami, got into broadcasting, and I've never worked since. When did you start? When you started in Miami, how did you, how did you break into the I dirt? knocked on doors. I, had no, I never went to college. And I just knew I wanted to do it. And some radio station, a uh, small radio station, said, well, let's listen to what you sound like. I'd never spoken in front of a microphone. He handed me a piece of paper news, and I read that. And he said, well, you sound pretty good. And uh, we're a small station. We have people on the way up or on the way out, if you want to hang around and learn a little bit about what's going on here. First opening, you'll give it to you. So I hung around there for three weeks. I was living with my uncle in a little apartment on Miami Beach and hung around this station, and one day somebody quit. And the general manager came to me on Friday and said, uh, Monday morning, you start, get your own show, you play records, you'll be a disc jockey. You'll do sports, you'll do interviews, you'll do, I mean, news. You know, you work all day long, $55 a week. Your show is on from 9 to 12 in the morning, and then in the afternoon you'll do news. And so, wow. So I stayed up all weekend, picked out my music. I was just so thrilled beyond I was going to be on the radio. It was a small little station. And then the morning I was going to start was May 1st, 1957. You never forget that. It's a warm day in Miami Beach. I got there. I was stayed up. I stayed up all night. Never went to sleep. It was seven o'clock in the morning. I picked out all my records. And the general manager called me in to his office, and he said, "Well, you start today. Good luck, kid." And I said, "Wow." And he said to me, "This is like ten to nine. I go on at nine. <laughs> what what name are you going to use?" And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you can't use Larry Zeiger. My name was Zeiger. And I said, why? He said, it was too ethnic. People <laughs> won't know how to spell it. Today, that wouldn't be true. And I said, what do I do? And he had the Miami Herald open. And it was an ad for King's Wholesale Liquors on Washington Avenue. And he said, uh, why don't you be Larry King? Better than Larry Liquors. So I said, yeah, okay, Larry King sounds good. I legally changed it a year later. And... Uh, then I went in and something happened that morning, which is why I asked you about structure. Um, I secured up my music. The music is playing. 
I faded the music. It was Les Elgar swinging down the lane, and nothing came out. I turned the mic on, and I froze. And I turned the music up and turned it down, and I didn't know what to say. I looked at the clock. It must have been like a minute and a half of music playing and nothing coming out. And I was scared to death. And I actually thought to myself that I always wanted to do this, and I'm scared, and I don't have the guts. And the general manager, Marshall Simmons was his name, kicked open the door, and he said, this is a communications business, damn it, communicate. And he shut the door. I turned on the mic, and I did something that morning that I would do the same today. I told the audience of the circumstance. I said, good morning. My name is Larry King. That's the first time I've ever said that. I've just been given that name. I'm a kid from Brooklyn who always wanted to be in radio. This is my life's dream come true this morning. And ladies and gentlemen, for the past two minutes, I've been scared to death. I just don't know what to say, and I've been so nervous. But I figured when the general manager kicked open the door and said, communicate, I better communicate. And I never was nervous again, never doubted myself again, never, never lost, because I learned something that day, which many people told me later, was I learned the secret of broadcasting, which is, there's no secret. <laughs> Just be yourself. Later, I was once being interviewed, and the guy said, well, what if, uh, what if you were walking down a hall at NBC, and someone grabbed you, sat you down, and said, Tom Brokaw, sick, you're on. Right? Yeah. I would look at the camera and said, uh, I was walking down the hall. Someone just grabbed me and said, Tom Brokaw's sick. I'm on. I'd lay in Germany. I've never anchored a newscast before. I'll do the best I can. Were other people doing that at the time? Because I well, was I don't know. That. Arthur Godfrey did it. Great broadcasters did it. They told you of the circumstance they were in. Arthur Godfrey once, there was a commercial for Pepsi-Cola in which the commercial said, Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel to Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Wow, that and Godfrey, Godfrey said, it's seven cents everywhere I go, that's a lie. <laughs> and I don't want to fool you. So Pepsi-Cola, it's still worth seven cents, but it's not a nickel. I never forgot that. So I never lied to the audience. You tell the audience the truth. You got a cold, say you got a cold. You sneezed, I just sneezed. It ain't, it ain't brain surgery. No, but there was, I feel like there was such an era of broadcasting where they tried to present this sort of rosy, idealized version of life. Yeah, certain broad, those were the night, I'll tell you an example of that. 98% of broadcasters were, good evening, welcome to another, you know, right? I never did that. Uh, and when I won my first Peabody Award, which is Broadcasting's Pulitzer, Alastair Cook was the MC that day. We were at a hotel in New York. And there were about 20 Pulitzer Peabody winners that day. And he said, 99% of the people in broadcasting are imitators. They just try to sound. They try to say the right thing. They try to be somebody else. The other, the other 1% is in this room. So I always felt all I did was be myself. I had no rules. There were, in fact, we had a sign-up in the broadcast studio that said, if in doubt, leave it out. I always broke that rule. I, I went to my, I trusted my broadcast instincts. So I never had, did a show where I said, is this going to be a good question? 
Is this going to work? What do they think of this? I never thought of they. I knew I could communicate. I knew I could elicit answers from people. I knew I could be funny. And I, I let the show come through me to the audience. They either liked, I, I couldn't make someone like me. I couldn't strangle you and say, like me. Once I knew that, I can't make you like me. I can't change being me. Why be somebody else? Why paint a picture that's not there? Mm -hmm. Paint the real picture. What do you got to lose? You, when, when I, first of all, it was really awesome for me to be, get to do your Hulu show. Uh, Thank you. I had a blast. And, and my, my mom, my, mm -hmm. my parents were so excited. And they, mm -hmm. I'm supposed to tell you hi. Uh, so hello. But something that I noticed, because on the podcast, we usually talk for a while. It's a very loose conversation. It just sort of goes where it goes. It's very much that idea of like, eh, this is the situation. We're being honest about it. It's very much the guts of that. But what I noticed when you were interviewing me, and I don't know if this is on purpose or not, but this is me overanalyzing. Y the questions that you asked jumped around so much. I was like, this is how he mains maintains control of the interview because I never knew where you were going and I was just answering. And I guess if I were, you know, some, a high-ranking official or any a political person, you could totally catch someone. Well, the truth is, uh, the answer to that is I don't know where I'm going either. In other words, all I'm doing is listening to your answer and then my mind switches to what next curious to me. I'm intensely curious I'm all over the board. I love learning things. Uh, I'm still the same as I was that first day on the air. I still, who, 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 what, where, when, why. That's what I'm all about. Who, what, where, when, why. The five basic questions. Yeah. Who are you? What are you doing? Where are you? Why here? Why is it? And, and I, I'm fascinated at the whole learning process. I'm fascinated by the Q&A. Uh, I leave myself out of it. I never use the word I. I uh, my questions are short, usually one sentence, sometimes two. If it's three sentences, it's too long. If, you, if it takes me three sentences to ask a question, then I'm... Um, that's why I don't <laughs> like a lot of what I see today is these guys on the air, they're interviewing themselves. Yeah. They're just talking about the, the guest as a prop. The guest was never a prop to me. The guest is important to me. The reason for the show is why the guest is there. I'm the host. I'll be back tomorrow. Right. Oh, I violate that stuff all the time. Everything you're saying, I do exactly. The, I do the exact opposite. I, I'm doing it now. I, I feel like because this is more. Well, this like, is a, it's a different era, and this is this whole. The, you have to be yourself. If that's your ambiance, if that's this podcast, then you'll you'll go that way. This is more a con. Mine wasn't a conversation. I'm an interviewer. Right. It's not a conversation. Conversation is what we're doing. We're going back and forth. I ask questions. My whole show is Q&A. It's not a conversation. A conversation is, well, so, Well, I had a meal today, and I ate, I ate over at the restaurant, and that's a conversation. Yeah. I don't, I don't do that. I've never done that. So you, you're able to sort of just lightly throw a ball in the air and then just let your guest or guests... Correct. Focus, let the guest go with it. And what you do in that kind of situation is... If you do that well, you, you learn by being intensely curious. You, the first time I interviewed Frank Sinatra, his PR person said to me, listen, I don't know how you got this interview. Jackie Gleason got him for me. And he said, I don't know how you got this because Frank doesn't do interviews. But I'm going to warn you, don't ask about his son's kidnapping because he doesn't want to talk about it. His son was kidnapped, and they, they recovered it, and they paid a ransom. And 
So please don't ask about the kid anymore. I said, okay, that's fair. I don't have to ask about it. In the course of the interview, we're now really into each other. I'm really, I said to him, Frank, with you in the press, have you been bum-wrapped or has some of it been your fault? <laughs> and he said, well, maybe some of it was my fault, but I've been bum-wrapped too. Take the kidnapping. He mentioned it. I never mentioned it. The PR guy, I thought, would faint. <laughs> and then he told me the whole story of the kidnapping, what happened to him in the press. Why did that happen? Because I made the microphone disappear. I was sincerely interested in him. And I never said kidnapping. So sometimes, uh, Penny Marshall, I just taped her today. Yeah. She's written a book. In her life, she's had some bad things happen to her. One of which, she had an abortion. Okay. And uh, they told me before we started, she wrote about it, but she doesn't want to discuss it. She had a bad time on one show, and they really hammered it. So she doesn't want to discuss it. I said, even if she wrote about it in a book, she doesn't want to discuss it. So what I asked her was, in your book, you write about an abortion, yet on previous shows you didn't want to discuss it. Why? <laughs> and we proceeded to discuss it, because she told me what happened on the previous shows. See, I wasn't infringing... I just was curious. But people feel comfortable with you. I think... I think. Well, that's the whole secret, but I don't know how I do that. I just know... I've, but that I've had all my life. When I was a kid, I would ask bus drivers why they want to drive a bus. Uh, I was a, a big baseball fan. I'd go to games. I never wanted autographs. I just wanted to ask questions. Why'd you do that? Why'd they bunt? Why'd you... Why'd you, why'd you I was just... And people felt comfortable with me because they know... I have a framed letter from Sinatra at home in which he said, uh, you, make, you make the camera disappear. Uh, once you could do that, when you have confidence, when the interview subject has confidence in the interviewer, you go anywhere with him. Yeah. You're not a threat. I'm not a threat. No, and I think that's what most people, particularly, you know, because we live in kind of a headline culture, and it's much more of a headline of someone to be shocked in a situation. And I think most people feel attacked a lot of the time rather than just, oh, it's okay. To well, just the problem is with when, when an interview gets defensive, you don't learn anything. See, in other words, if, I, if someone is guarded mm -hmm. and angry, the last, it may sound nice, you know, ooh, son of a bitch. Right? <laughs> that may sound nice. However, the audience is not learning anything. They're hearing anger. Well, I'm not. I'm not there to produce anger. I'm there to to learn, and uh, so I take the approach of uh, why did you do that? You know, when you ask a question, why the word why, and sincerely asked, it's very hard not to respond well if you're good at what you do. Like you know, and no matter what. Well, Someone said, if you, if, if you had Osama bin Laden on, who'd you ask him? And I said, well, the last thing I would ask him immediately would be is, why'd you bomb those buildings? Right. See, because then I'm creating defensiveness. Why'd you bomb those buildings? Right. That's a dumb question. A good question is, <clears throat> you were part of the royal family of Saudi Arabia. Why, why did you leave that life? Right now he's going to tell me, assume, why he left that life, why he chose to live in caves. See, then you lead up to bombing of a building. Sure. 
rather than watch around that building. Now that's going to be exciting, and he may be angry, but not going to learn why. But if I go that route of why you left the family, see, I'm interested in him. He knows I'm interested in him. Nobody <coughs> we perceive as evil looks in the mirror and combing their hair says, I'm evil. Right. Hitler didn't look in the mirror and say, I am a terrible person. Right. They thought they were right. right. So if you treat them like, why should you do that? Hitler, what? why this feeling about the Jews? As opposed to, why do you feel that way about the Jews? Same question, asked the right way. So I built confidence in, in my uh, interview subjects. And this is the way I made a lot of news, and I learned a lot by being... My friend Herbie says, the secret of Larry's success is he's dumb. In other <laughs> words, uh, I don't know. Help me. Now, all my interviews are basically help me. I'm a kid from Brooklyn. I just want to know. I'm just... I, I, I don't... I don't I, why, why did you do that? I, <laughs> I don't... Why did you, you rob the bank? Why did you kill that person? Do you think everyone has a sort of inherent need to want to tell their story? I think so. Maybe not for, I don't think there's inherent need to talk about your personal life, but I never knew anyone who didn't want to talk about what they do. I didn't know, I never met an actor who didn't want to talk about acting. They may not want to talk about who they divorced, and that's none of my business. Yeah. But I, I never met a person in any craft who didn't want to discuss the crap because that's, of course, what they were raised with, what they were built with. That was their goals. So that you, you, they want to share that, that you want to share that. So you go with that. Go with they want to share. You know, it's... it's um, very few people don't want to talk about themselves. Very few. Was there one... Was there one nut in all the years that you just couldn't crack, that you were just like, I'm going to get him this time, and you just couldn't? Just couldn't Robert Mitchum, who I loved as an actor, just drove me nuts. He just didn't want to be, he didn't want to be there. I think he was, for some reason, and he was all yes, no, maybe, why, why. He just didn't want to respond. So all you could do is all you could do. See, then that goes back to the original. There's no such thing as the perfect interview. There's no such thing as everything. You can't. You just, all you, all you could do is all you could do. You try to learn, you try to weed them out. Sometimes you could take a guess, I didn't with him, but you can take a guess and turn them around. The best example of that is, there's an organization called uh, ACES. ACES are fighter pilots who shot down more than five enemy planes in war. Okay. And you, it's a social organization, you call it an ACE. And it was started as America, but now there's ACES all over the world. German ACES, Vietnamese ACES. And they were fighter pilots. It means they're up in a plane alone, taking on other aircraft in the air, shooting at each other. And they have an organization they meet every year, the ACEs. And sometimes they find they were in battles against each other, because it's international. Anyway, I'm in Miami, and we find that the ACEs are meeting in Miami, and we have an ACE, a Miami ACE. No kidding. Guy was a stockbroker, and Carl Gables, and he shot down nine German planes in World War II going up alone into the sky, shooting at other planes. And he came to be on my radio show. And he was on the last hour, so he was the last guest. And he's on for an hour. He came in, he shook my hand, his hand was sweating. He was so nervous. <laughs> and the Miami Herald was there taking pictures, and we had this American ace living. And I began by saying, well, why... Uh, 
Why did you get interested in the Air Corps? I liked it. So I didn't hear you. I liked it. Did you take to flying right away? Yes. I, he was scared to death. I look up, you know, I'm three minutes into this, and this guy just don't want to talk. His mouth is dry. He's just, his hands are sweaty. So I switched, and I said, if, if there were enemy planes overhead now, and we had a plane in the back of the station, would you, would you go take it up? Yes. You wouldn't be afraid? No. Then I went right to it. Why are you afraid here? <laughs> and he said, I, I don't know who's listening. I know who's in the air, I don't know who's listening. So what I did was switch the subject to fear. Why we have fear? What creates fear? And I created a monster. By the end of that show, this guy was doing, we dove through the sky, I saw I saw the whites of their eyes. They were we had to drag them out of the station. Is that it, an hour's up? So I, I did that by transforming him. And that's that's working at it. You know, I had to, I had to do what I had to do. How do you remain sort of um, kind of agnostic to everything? I'm mean, just your, with your Hitler or Bin Laden example. How do you keep emotion out of it so that it doesn't kind of get in the way of what you're trying um, to do? Because I'm a professional. I, that's where I start. I started by listening to professional. I'm a professional. My, I have many opinions. I'm very political. Uh, I have opinions on myriad of things. But I leave it at the door. I leave my ego outside the door. I have a healthy ego. I know I've been successful. I know I'm good at what I do. But when, the, when, I, when I'm on the air, my role is not what Larry King thinks. It's what the guest thinks. And then I'm a conduit. I, I ask good questions. The guest, through me, comes to the audience, and the audience makes up their own opinion. And I'm able to do that. I don't like everybody I've interviewed. But I do the best I can to learn the most I can about them. And I learned that by being antagonistic, like I, the only time I, I can remember George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, who was a racist. Sure. Uh, I had, later on, he changed in life. But I had him on. And uh, I, I, we were getting into the racial issue, and I, he said uh, something like, uh, he was being a wise ass, and he said, uh, I asked him some question like, in the, well, what, what, what would be the difference other than pigment? What's the difference between a black and a white? We all have hearts, we all have kidneys. I could, you could take a, a kidney from another person, could be black. What's the difference other than the pigment of skin? What's the difference? And he goes, I don't, I don't notice any, uh, any Negroes at this station. And I said, well, they own the station. They're out to lunch. I, I, I just challenged him. And what happened is we got into a, a verbal argument about race and I don't think I accomplished very much. And later on years, uh, he came back and he was different and he had changed and uh, I treated him differently and learned a lot more. The racism is the one craw that I've always uh, uh, either gave an opinion about or always annoyed me because it's the one thing that I grew up with uh, when I went down south to break into Miami. I got off the train. I grew up in New York, and I saw two faucets, two water-drinking faucets, and one said white, one said Negro. 
and I drank out of the Negro faucet. And I got on the bus to go to my uncle's house, and I rode in the back of the bus. Uh, and I marched in the beaches in Miami when they integrated the beaches, and I never understood it, and I never got a good answer to a question from racists. I still don't get a good answer today. What the hell is the difference? What, what are you so upset about? Why does it bother you if someone is black or yellow? What the hell's, why, why, why would it matter in your life? Yeah. All the money you had spent. Racists spend so much. Look at the South. The South had to build two bathrooms on every floor. <laughs> Four bathrooms, black women, white women. It's insane. That's how strong the racism was. It, but it's insane. It is. The whole thing is insane. You, it's, it's seg, uh, look, racism. Uh, to be, to, it, just, it just so annoys me that I've never understood it that someone is, that has an, a feeling about someone just because of their color of their skin. Mm -hmm. it, it makes, it makes no sense to me. It's just, I'd never heard a, and I, I'd ask people, I never heard a rational explanation of it. You can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. A friend of mine made it's, that point. Where it's it's, like, all, oh, it's, it's totally it's Racists are stupid. There's no, there's no real. If you are a racist, you are dumb. <laughs> I don't think we have any racists that listen to the podcast. Thankfully, you, might, you never cool. know. By the way, there, there's, there's, there's a little inner racism because of the way we're raised. And you think um, Dean Rusk, who was American Secretary of State years ago, was a Southerner who was very liberal and whose uh, daughter married a black man. And uh, was telling me once that he thought that there's a little bit of racism in everybody because of the way you were raised and what you saw when you grew up. And, and he thought he was always totally liberal. His daughter married a black man. He had black grandchildren. And he was totally, he just was comfortable with it. And he got on an airplane once and the pilot was black and he was nervous. Really? And then he had to grab himself to say, why am I nervous? And he thought was, could the black fly the plane? Wow. So he had to measure himself. Even he had that tinge of it. Well, at least he recognized that. Correct. And didn't go but, with it. <laughs> but it was his first thought. Interesting. Yeah. We have to examine ourselves all the time. Well, that's an interesting point, though. Is Do you feel like you are still are examining yourself? Do you feel like as much experience as you have that you still go home some days and go, I should have done this or what, what can I do to get better? Oh, yeah. Sure. I, uh, when you stop learning, you might as well die. Uh, I don't know everything. What are you learning now? I'm learning. I learn something every day. Every time I open up a newspaper, I learn about things in the world. I learn about people. People fascinate me. I, I, I every time I go to a baseball game, I learn something I've never learned before. And I, I thought I knew everything about baseball. I don't know everything. It's something you learn every day. It's just, it's just people say things to me that I can't. Someone told me once that there are more moves in a chess game, more moves than sand on a beach. <laughs> I play chess, I didn't know that. It's incomprehensible to me. It's, there's no limit to how many chess moves there are. So why is it then, because I, I look at you and I think you're still doing what you do and you're still relevant and you're still good at it. We just had Joan Rivers on the podcast. I feel the same way about Joan. I love, just interviewed her last week. I love Joan. 
And yet, you know, some people, when they get to a certain point in their lives, they just kind of stop. They just kind of wall off. What is it that keeps you guys hungry and and all and wanting? Because most people don't get older and then go, "I want to keep learning." They go, "Ah, screw everything." I don't know. I don't. Uh, there's some people I know like that uh, who I like. You know, in fact, that's more common to stop learning. Uh, they just are what they call set in their ways. Yeah. Now we all are a little bit set in their ways. We're set in our ways, but I. To me, the whole learning process is so fascinating that to be totally said to say, this is it and that's the way it is, is, uh, is uh, self-defeating. It's stupid. It's stupid. Like, uh, like uh, getting back to right, prejudice means to prejudge. Mm-hmm. Prejudge is idiotic. I do not like this. How do you know? You haven't tried it. <laughs> now, do we all prejudge? Yes. I'll look at a certain food and I won't taste it. So I'm idiotic with that regard to that. I That's have a prejudge. pretty small in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, correct. But it is. But I still do it. So was it exciting for you when so when you leave CNN and then you and then you kind of embark on this new kind of digital frontier of your career? That must be kind of exciting because it's, it's exciting. A whole, it's a whole new thing. Well, I was the first to do the national radio talk show. First to do a, a, an international talk show, taking phone calls from around the world. And I guess the internet is new, and I'm into the internet. But to me, honestly, it's still 1957, and I'm asking questions. In other words, the transmission is different. Podcasts and internet and things and satellites. But basically... It's still two people talking. Those are just accidental okay. qualities. So the means of transmitting it is different. So instead of picking up the phone at the house, you can walk in the street and have a cell phone and talk on the cell phone. You're still talking on the phone, <laughs> right? It's still a means of communication. So while I look at it as a... The, the transmission is the adventure, but the doing is the same. I'm not doing anything different than I did 55 years ago. I'm being transmitted differently. Sure. I'm not doing anything different. Do you feel like you have that thing in you where you just want or need to work every every day? Yeah, I guess that. I thought I could leave it. Uh, I thought I could. Um, but I do speaking. I do comedy shows around the country. I do... Uh, spe- I was speaking in Denver on Friday. I speak at conventions... Speaking in Moscow. You do stand up? Are you doing stand up? Oh, I do. Oh, yeah. I tell stories. I've told stories all my life. Uh, I used to work at speak at conventions, and I'd be invited to speak at sales meetings, and I would do tell funny stories. And my nephew, is Scott Zeiger, who's a Broadway producer, very successful Broadway producer, he said, "You know, uh, you leave in CNN. You've done humor all your life. You tell you tell you're really funny." You tell funny stories, and you have you know how to deliver a punchline. You know timing. Why don't you put those stories together and do an act? And I went on the road, and I go on stage, cold, bare stage. It's the biggest thrill of my life, by the way. It's bigger thrill than interviewing, is to go out on a cold stage, just you and a microphone, and two thousand people there. There, of course, they know you. They don't know what to expect, <laughs> and you make them laugh. And I love making people laugh. I love, I'll tell you what the comic has. 
I've interviewed all the great comics, spent a lot of time with comics. I'd have been, if I hadn't gotten into radio, I'd have been a comic. Uh, because you have one of the, the great moments that a comic has, more than an actor, more than a singer, is they have moments. And that moment is that moment before the punchline. <laughs> Here it comes. When you know what's coming and you have them, you know you have them because they've laughed already. And there, it's it's orgasmic. It's a high that you're building. You're telling a joke, or you're telling a story, and you know where the story's going. You're weaving this pattern around, or you ad lib something in it, and you're at that moment, that little moment, that little breath, and then the roar when you tell, when you if you can tell a joke and tell it well, and get the story and deliver it well. It just is. And when can you make uh, just just all comedy is surprise. It's all surprise. Mm -hmm. The ending has to surprise me. That's why I laugh. So I don't I don't know where you're going, and I don't know where this is, and then you hit me and you you deliver it right. And that's why I like comics. You know, I spend so much time with Mel Brooks, Jackie Gleason. Oh, what was Jackie Gleason like as a oh, person? Jackie was. Jackie was a See, now Jackie was not a teller of jokes. Jackie was a comedic actor. Mm -hmm. So he threw into comedy into a scene, like the honeymooners. He was brilliant. He would, and everything was, he knew what he, what he was. I was backstage once when the honeymooners were live. They went down to Miami Beach. Oh my God. In live musicals. And Jackie was, Jackie was a mentor to me. He loved me. He, I mean, he was so good to my career. He did promos for my shows. So I'm standing backstage. And they're on live, coast to coast, CBS. And they're doing a scene. He comes off for a minute. And he says to me, they're in the middle of a scene. And he says to me, hey, right after the show, let's go to Raimondo's. We'll have the Italian guy. He goes, 30 seconds. He says, we'll go to Raimondo's. Call him up now. Tell him I want the Bolognese. 15, Jackie. 10 seconds. Tell him I want the wine. Ready? Tell him we'll be there at a quarter. Five seconds. And tell him we're Norton. <laughs> right, turn around, Morton, right in his scene, right in his cue line. Holy, holy mackerel. But when you get really funny people, Rickles and I go back. Rickles used to, I used to do a show at Pumpernick's Restaurant. That's where I started. Bobby Darren was the first person I ever interviewed that was famous. Lenny Bruce used to come on that show. Oh, my God. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a scene, Lenny Bruce comes. I got Rickles on the air and Lenny Bruce Oh, together. my God. I can't even imagine. There's no tape for this. Well, Lenny comes. I can tell we're really into it now. So, Lenny comes in a prison uniform. A prison uniform from Rayford Prison and the state prison. <laughs> I said, Lenny, we're on the radio. I have to tell the radio. I said, you're in a prison uniform. He says, yeah, a friend of mine smuggled it out and sent it to me. I said, you wear it on the street? Yeah, the hat, the number, the whole thing. Why? He said, I like, to, I like to go up to cops and ask them directions. <laughs> and I, like to, I know what the cop is thinking. Is this an escaped convict asking me directions? Nah. Why would an escaped convict ask me directions? However, what about a brilliant escaped convict who would think that I wasn't an escaped convict? <laughs> Why would I be asking directions? <laughs> and, and Rickle said, Lenny... Get a job. <laughs> <laughs> so the, those are moments I've had in my life. I've played, 
I've had so many, and I'll, I'll incorporate some of this into my stand-up. I'll tell Mel Brooks stories like Mel Brooks' 2,000-year-old man, which is the funniest album ever made. You ever hear it? Of course. Okay. I was the first one ever to play that album. Warner Brothers sent it to me. I was a disc jockey in 1959 in Miami. They sent this to me. They heard my work, and I played this. I played this. I couldn't believe how funny it was. Carl Reiner is now. I just had breakfast with Carl Reiner last week. And Mel Brooks became one of the funniest men in the world to me, and I loved him, and I had him on my shows many times. So I'm at the New York World's Fair in 1964, broadcasting from the Florida Pavilion, and Mel comes on. And I said to him, do you want to play the 2,000-year-old man? He said, sure. So I said to him, uh, well, you're 2,000-year-old. Now, his mind, see, I love the mind. Uh, we're at the World's Fair. What do you think of this fair? He goes, fair. <laughs> I go, wait a minute. Fair? Fair? I said, we got monorails? He goes, yeah, yeah, they're nice. Were you at the first fair? Were you at the first fair? I was at the first fair. It was in 0037. 632 people came, the whole world. <laughs> and, you know, I said, and you know how they got the, how did they, they get to the fair? Well, we had no means of transportation. So the fair was at the bottom, was at the bottom of a ravine. And people would roll into the fair. That was part of the attractions. To watch them roll in, folks, they'd lie down and roll into the fair. I said, well, what? what it was 0037. There were no electronics. What was the big hit at the fair? Oh, the burning bush. The burning <laughs> bush was big. We, we thought it was a ride. <laughs> we jump on and jump off. And I, well, 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 he says, you know what the number one attraction was? What? Moses. What did he do? He parted the Red Sea. Three times a day, four times on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, he was just wild. Then he comes on my show. He was on my show the night we landed on the moon. Oh, my God. And that was some night. Oh, my God. We landed on the moon. We did a whole thing now. Mel Brooks. I said, well, Mel, the t we played a 2,000-year-old man. <laughs> what do you think of the moon? Landing on the moon. He says, I love the moon. In my whole life in 2,000 years... I gotta say, the moon is my favorite object. I have great feelings for the moon, I love the moon. Why? He said, well, <laughs> for 400 years I thought I had a cataract. <laughs> <laughs> and a friend of mine, Irving, once said, isn't the moon beautiful tonight? I said, the what? <laughs> the moon. I would do things with see that I could tell. That's the kind of, you see, I could deliver a line, right? And I, I would, Mel, I wouldn't do it a little more. I, Mel would do, I said to Mel, uh, do you know Christopher Columbus? Oh, crazy Chris. Know him well. Best dancer in Genoa. The what? Great dancer. What a great. I'm talking before George Rout. He did the bolero. He did the cha-cha. He did the mambo. He was the number one killer. The best dancer you ever saw. I said, did the queen give him money Columbus, did he give him money to find the free world? False. She gave him money to take an apartment in Paris because she had a husband whose nose went out and made a left turn. <laughs> so Chris took the money. I told you he's crazy. He bought ships. <laughs> Going to find a new world. I said, listen, there's Yuba. Do you remember the day he said the world was round? I'll never forget it. <laughs> we were sitting around. He walks in with his knickers, this big knickers, crazy. Here comes crazy Chris. 
And he said, ladies and gentlemen, the world is round. He said, I've laughed so hard, I spit on my tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you're so... I love that. I love comics. I love humor. I love making people laugh. I love telling a joke when the joke works. When you know a joke is funny and you can make people laugh. I remember making... I had Gleason and Sinatra together once. Jeez. And I made them laugh. It was at a dinner. And I told a polar bear joke. Which is? A polar bear goes over to his father, his mother, and says, am I a polar bear? And the mother says, yes, you're a polar bear. We're all polar bears. We're living your cousins. We're all polar bears. Okay, okay. Comes back the next day. Am I a polar bear? I told you yesterday, you're a polar bear. We're all polar bears. This is our, okay. Comes back the third day. Ma, you got to tell me, am I a polar bear? She's listen, son, you're driving me nuts. Everybody here is a polar bear. Why are you bugging me? Because I'm freezing. <laughs> <laughs> See, now that's funny. If you tell it right way, you space it the right, that's funny. The polar bear joke. It just works. And you cracked up Jackie Gleason. And- oh, yeah. Frank hit the, hit the table, you know. And you know they're going to tell it again, you know. And- but Gleason, I'll tell you something like that. You appreciate this as a stand-up. Yeah. Woody Allen's doing stand-up at the Diplomat. Gleason says, I'd like to go see him. So I go with Jackie Gleason to see Woody Allen. Because you heard about him. And Woody was a very nervous stand-up. He was a writer and an actor, but he, he was very nervous on stage. He'd wear sneakers, he'd fiddle around, he'd look for the right things to say. He was, it was all part of his shtick. So I'll tell you how Gleason's mind would work. So Woody's telling a story. He said it was, uh, it was October, and I, was Woody, and I went hunting, and I saw a moose, and I shot a moose, and I tied the moose to the side of my car, and I drove into the city, and the moose woke up. <laughs> what do I do? I got a live moose. And Gleason leans over to me, and he goes, Halloween. That's all he said. And he says, now, Woody then says, it's Halloween, and the Goldbergs are having a costume party. I take the moose up to the costume party, right? The moose mingles. <laughs> He's drinking pretty good. They have a, cost- a contest, best costume. The Goldbergs came dressed as a moose. <laughs> the Goldbergs win the contest. The moose finishes second. <laughs> they tangle in the middle of the floor. The moose drops down. I grab the moose, take him up to the mountains, shoot him again. It was the Goldbergs. I shot the Goldbergs. And that head of that moose is on the New York Athletic Club, which discriminates against Jews. Little did they know, right? That was. So now it's after the show. We're going backstage. And I said to Jackie, Why'd you say Halloween? And he said, why did he say it was October? Oh. He's a a comedy Sherlock. That's right. Why did he say it was October? What's the relevance of October? Moose, October, costume. The idea of you and Jackie Gleason and Woody Allen in the same room, it almost melts my brain. Like, those are the kind of stories that a comic wants to hear. I had that life... I had great times with lots of comics. Hugh Rickles was one of my favorite all-time people. I mean, I just Such a sweet him. man. I met him once. He's the Such sweetest guy in the world. 
I have a daughter named Kaya. It's a Jewish name, C-H-A-I-A. Okay. When she was born, Rickles called me up and said, is that a kid or a canoe? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Rickles do things in clubs. When you watch them over the years, he'd have Bob Hope in the audience. Bob Hope is here, big in war. <laughs> anyway, and, and so the way you do it, and Rickles is so sweet, he wouldn't harm a fly. Yeah. And I love, you ever seen his act? I've never seen him live. No, I've always wanted to. The mad emperor walks on with the band playing. He kisses women. and he, he's, just, he's crazy. He goes, look, I kid everybody, but let's put it. We're all human beings, and we're all the same in flesh. Jew, Gentile, black, Asian, Puerto Rican. Well, Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> and he, gets, he can say anything. Yeah, oh, yeah, he gets away with it. Oh, he just... He just is... Uh, Comics live longer. I believe there's a reason for that. I think if you make people laugh, you have a better life. You have a good life if 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 in your life you make people laugh. I've known them all, you know, George Burns. I asked George Burns, God, you're 99 years old. You ever have arthritis? I was the first one to get it. <laughs> You didn't. Do, I know you have to go in a okay. sec. I don't, we did forty five minutes. We did forty five, man. Thank you for for sitting here this sure. whole time. I never even. I, I always. I, have I, I do comedy. I do lots of things. I'm a Renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Is there anything left that you that you still want to do? Uh, I think the last thing I'd like to do. I'd like to do. A Broadway play. Uh but I wouldn't want to do it for more than like a week. <laughs> yeah. But I'd like to, I've been in 22 movies and I've done comedy and I've done radio, television, read newspaper columns, I've written 16 books. I'd like to be in a play, probably a Neil Simon comedy. Okay. Maybe The Odd Couple. Who would be you f- be? Well, it's funny, you know, I, Felix and Oscar, I, the interesting you say that because you're a comic, you'd appreciate this. Jackie Gleason wanted to do The Odd Couple. The movie? Yeah. No, just take the, play. the stage play. Uh, and he thought it was a perfect comedy play. It was just really funny. He loved it. And I said, You're going to play uh, Oscar, of course. He said, Oh, no, no. I'll play Felix. Why? Bigger laughs. See, Oscar, this way Jackie thought, Oscar's a one note character. He's brazen and but Felix is subtle, mamby-pamby, Mrs. Wife, and he works off it, as Gleason used to work off Carney. Oh, yeah. Carney was funny. Gleason worked off him. And if you like working off someone, you could be funnier being Felix. Felix, he says, see, Felix, you can develop. See, Oscar is very well written, but he's one note. Oscar's a slob. He's a Felix is tender. He's divorced. He's lost things. You know, he's he, he's just. I never even thought. I never even. I feel like an idiot. I never even thought of that. Of course, you think of the honeymooners is Jackie's show, but he's nothing without art. Oh yeah, he worked off art. He thought about everything. At I he let me attend a writers' meeting for the honeymooners, and uh, they wrote a great script. I tell you how sensitive Jackie was. The script was, it was during the Depression. And during the Depression in New York, they would have rent parties. If you couldn't make your rent, 
you throw a party. You f- supply the potato chips and pretzels. People bought wine and liquor, and when they walked in, they dropped money in a kitty oh. that you can pay the rent with. It was like a rent party. Okay. So he has this whole script, and they write this script, and the Cramdons are having this rent party. Jackie's in, and they're throwing laugh lines. Now Jackie comes in to hear the script. And I'm sitting there, and they read the script for a Marvin Marks, and this guy, Jackie's laughing. He's pounding, that's funny, that's funny. So we can't use any of it. Why? Cramden would never throw a rent party. Oh. Too much pride. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't give the honeymooners a phone. So every gag had to be said. The writers didn't have a phone. You could work a million gags off a phone. People had to come to the door. You never went into the bedroom. Never saw the bedroom in that apartment. <laughs> I gotta go. All right, you gotta go. Larry King, this has been amazing. My pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, my pleasure. A podcast. I made it, Ma. You've done Time it. Time the world. He did it. This was the last thing he wanted to do. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. Murder on My Mind, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus, explores the circumstances leading up to the murder of two young men and the mistrials of the man accused of killing them. Up-and-coming rapper YNW Melly gained notoriety in the hip-hop world for his shocking lyrics and criminal exploits. When two of his best friends were gunned down in a drive-by shooting, investigators suspected the young rapper staged the scene. But after not one but two trials that ended in hung juries and new evidence that may place YNW Melly at the scene of the crime, his trial has been paused indefinitely. With countless twists and turns, Law and Crime covers all angles of the case and begs the question, is this young artist the victim of a witch hunt or a silver-tongued devil who's evil to the core? Listen to Murder on My Mind exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.